Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon. This is Dr. Simon. My show is called The Stories We Live By. And this is part two of an episode that I did two days ago, which was entitled, and is still entitled, How the False Stories of Mental Illness and Health Can Steal Your Life. And I began that episode by discussing a tweet that somebody had uh, put on, on, in the Internet about how the fact for 20 years she hasn't lived her life because she's been waiting for the right cocktail of drugs, referred to as psychiatric medicines, to stabilize and balance her chemical imbalances in her brain, which are the reason why for whatever reason, she's not uh, getting her life the way she wants it to. Um, um, and it's been ruined, stolen from her. And I have watched this happen through the 50 years of my career. And so I discussed this uh, at about, for about 40 minutes on, on uh, Wednesday. And I want to continue discussing it today. And I'm not going to repeat everything I said, but it is impossible for there to be anything called mental illnesses. We can judge an organ of the body and recognize that it's not operating according to the standards of how we understand a healthy organ to operate. And as a result, it will produce a variety of pains and, and, and biological problems referred to as symptoms. And we usually then organize the symptoms, in medicine anyway, and call it an illness or a disease. Um, there can't be a disease of one's psychology. Behavior can be judged socially or by the individual to be harmful, to be dangerous, to be destructive to the person who's behaving that way, drinking too much, taking too many drugs, the wrong kinds of drugs, driving too fast, uh, abusing their children, um, being hurtful to other people, um, committing criminal acts. But these, if we judge these behaviors, we're only going to judge them as morally or ethically. There's no other way to judge a behavior that's generated by an individual that has a motive. I want to get more money. I want to subdue my, my girlfriend so she, she uh, uh, allows me to do sexually with her what I want. Uh, I don't have any money, so I want to take a gun and go into a bank and rob it. Right? To make judgments about these behaviors uh, are moral. What has happened historically is that when individuals have been unhappy, destructive to others, and self-destructive, it fell under the purview of medically trained individuals originally referred to as mad doctors and later referred to as psychiatrists who began to use medical terminology 
to make these judgments about behaviors that either society didn't want or the individual engaged in and felt they couldn't stop or the individual engaged in and, and didn't understand why they were doing what they were doing. But it was the wrong term. Self-destructive behavior is just that, self-destructive. So what has happened is created an illusion or a myth, as one of my intellectual heroes called it, of a mental illness. But an illness, to say something is an illness, in medical terms, requires that there be a clear diagnosis that something in the body is wrong and it determines the thing that is upsetting to people, the pain or a behavior, something that somebody does, which is really not under their volition, but is under the volition of something wrong in their body or their brain. But then it's not a mental illness. Because the judgment is a medical judgment, a true medical judgment. If I can't sleep because I have a pain, or if I can't focus my eyes and I can't read properly because there's something going on in my brain that won't let me perform that action, I have a real medical problem that requires real medical intervention. It's not a mental illness. It's a real illness and requires real medicine to treat it or some other type of therapy, radiation, surgery, uh, uh, changing bad habits that create physical problems. So we're locked in now to this notion that there are mental illnesses. Any behavior, any expression of emotion any pattern of thinking can be judged to be wrong and be called a mental illness or symptoms of a mental illness and treated by individuals using that language. But there is no real illness, only moral judgments about the behavior. And this gets us into all kinds of trouble. Now, I don't have to repeat this argument. I think it's clear if it's not clear, you could read about this. You could read Thomas Zoss's book, The Myth of Mental Illness. I recommend that you read my book, Psychotherapy, which I put therapy in quotes because it's not real therapy. It's make-believe therapy. Talking to somebody is not a therapy. It can be educational. It could be helpful. It could be corrective of things. But it's not a medical procedure. And it has been turned into by myth, by magic, something that's medical. It's paid for now by medical insurance. And that has allowed all kinds of individuals who never went to medical school to be licensed to do psychotherapy and have it paid for by medical insurance. It's expanded the process, but it perpetuated a lie. I never went to medical school. I have a doctorate in psychology. I'm a psychologist. So I look at the individual's problems 
And if I believe they are due to a medical problem, I send them to a regular medical doctor, not a psychiatrist, but a regular medical doctor. I am licensed to treat anyone. Not anymore. I've given up my license because I'm fully retired. But I could at this point, if I got my license back, it wouldn't take very much, pay for my malpractice insurance. I could treat anyone of over 500 so-called mental illnesses by talking to the individual. Because that's what I did. I tried to get them to have some insight into the problems that behaviors that they didn't understand of their own or understand of other people or to be less self-destructive, drink less, smoke less, stop taking drugs that, that way. All of this was done through a relationship and through talking. But what happens now, it's all locked in, it's baked in. And I have to now really talk about how this becomes long-term destruction. Last time I mentioned that in order for psychiatry to get back its preeminence, they created an idea of chemical imbalances causing many of the psychological problems that get diagnosed as mental illnesses, right? Morally judged now, but pretending to be something having to do with medical. And then I pointed out that these drugs are not medicines, they're only drugs. People drink, people do all kinds of things to feel better. But they're feeling better not because they're treating an illness, but because they're warping out the function of their brain and they happen to like how they feel while their brain is being uh, uh, disabled in one way or another. So that people are on these drugs and they could be put on these drugs for the rest of their life. And eventually many of them show terrible symptoms of real medical problems. Tardive dyskinesia, a neuromuscular problem, akathisia, terrible pains and distortions of feeling in the body. But what I want to do now is talk about the self and what happens to these moral labels once they become internalized as the central part of anybody's identity, yours or mine or anyone's. Now, these terms, being mentally ill, you have an anxiety disorder, you have a drinking disorder, you have a, a, a psychotic disorder. All of these things are really moral judgments about behavior that somebody, including yourself, believes shouldn't be. Right? But what happens is this can be applied in a variety of areas and is very simple way somebody cuts you off in your car and you say that schmuck now it's clear you've now judged the person to be a schmuck but at the same time the judgment is being used to explain why he cut you off if later you stop if you stop if you stop the individual and talk to them 
about the fact that cut you off. You may discover, as I do here in Florida, among the aged of whom I am one and, and I live with, they could be on six or seven different medications whose interactions are not fully understood. Right? That changes the definition. To judge something is different than understanding something. Right? If I want to understand somebody's behavior, I need to understand their motives. I have to understand why they think they're doing this particular action. I have to understand the life they're living and the life they've lived. But not if I call them a schmuck. Somebody commits an act, robs a bank. They're now called a criminal. It's not that they simply committed a criminal act. They at the center of their identity, at the center of who they are as a human being, is now a criminal. Once a criminal, always a criminal. Your reputation has been ruined. And it's true. Millions of people have committed criminal acts, atoned, made restitution, done their time if that was considered by society to be necessary and never committed another, another crime. But they're always going to be considered unless we look at the circumstances of their life and why they did this. And not to say they didn't commit a crime, not to say they didn't do something that was harmful and destructive to others and themselves. Not at all. The judgment remains about the behavior they committed, but not forever. Somebody says something they don't like black people or people of color. They are a racist. No, they said something that is racist. And you could be as racist as racist can be at one point in your life <coughs> and totally different in your attitudes towards people of color. Or you're an anti-Semite. At one point in your life, you may hold terribly anti-Semitic attitudes. And another time in your life, given changed circumstances, increased learning, change of life in terms of who you live with and what you learn about people who are of color or of Jewish or are gay, but we use these labels all the time. Judgments don't explain. To say that cancer is bad, it's a dread disease, we can all agree on. But that won't help us understand the nature of the cancer. To do that, we have to be able to understand the processes of making up what cancer is. We have to observe it. We have to observe the lifestyle that was related to it. We have to understand the history of the individual. We have to understand many aspects of their biology. And the more we can describe, the more we understand. And the more we understand, the more we can make predictions 
So that when I smoked as a teenager, many people, doctors, medical people knew it was harmful. But what came out in my early 20s, in the early 60s, was that it causes cancer smoking. It damages the lungs. It causes cancer. Not everybody gets cancer from smoking, but many of the people, it's a contributing factor. Very few people I know now smoke. Most doctors smoked in the 1950s. Find the doctor who smokes now and you see him smoke, get the hell out of his office. This is not a person I think anybody wants medical advice from because we can predict, not with 100% certainty, but with a great deal of certainty, that smoking causes cancer. At the same point, the more we understand, the better we can able cure and prevent the cancer. And we're coming to that point in our history unless we blow ourselves up or we don't heed the terrible environmental catastrophes we are now bringing upon ourselves very rapidly. And it's not because we're stupid. Children don't learn. Dummy, stupid, we dress that up. Learning disabled. I used to watch Observe Teachers Teach as part of a program that I was involved with at the college that I taught. If the kid was learning disabled, it was because the teacher was teaching disabled. No. The kid was having trouble learning in a given context. If, in fact, there was a neurological problem, then he doesn't have a learning disability. He has a neurological problem. He has a medical problem. That has to be addressed. But if a child has problems at home, and he can't concentrate. He doesn't have a learning difficulty. He's not concentrating. If he has conflict with his teacher, and the teacher, in her wisdom and her maturity, can't work through that relationship so that the child is more comfortable and learns in a style that's conducive to that youngster, he doesn't have a disability, that's simply now saying there's something wrong with the child and when we attach it to the self, his essence, he is now permanently disabled in our eyes. And once you see yourself as permanently labeled and permanently disabled, that the essential self which I want to talk about for a moment, is damaged, then your belief is nothing can do to change it. You are, as the comedian Martin Short used to say, doomed as doomed can be. It's over. I cannot change the fact that I am five feet, nine inches. I used to be over five feet, ten inches. I've shrunk. So if I wanted to be competitive in basketball and I was told I needed to be six foot two, couldn't change it. That's not to say that there haven't been great basketball players at five feet ten. 
But if that's what was required to get me on a team, it was hopeless. I can't change my height, but I can change my behavior. I can change what I do through careful learning, through observation, through the right kind of tutoring, through the right kind of coach. All kinds of things can be changed in our behavior, but not if we see it as a permanent aspect of the self. The saddest words I used to have to deal with when somebody came to me confused and unhappy and leading a wretched life was, I am evil. How did they get that way, evil? I had a woman I worked with for over 10 years. As she grew up, her mother, who I would label as a fanatic in terms of religion, blamed her for everything that made her unhappy. This happens all the time, unfortunately. You ruined my life. You're the worst thing that's ever lived, the mother would tell her over and over and over again. This woman was my age. And when she was six or seven years old, five or six, she opened up a newspaper and she saw the pictures of those skeletons, those living, walking skeletons that had been liberated from the death camps in Germany and Poland in Eastern Europe. And she concluded immediately, somehow she was responsible for that. It went to the essence of who she was, and it never got corrected. Children do, when they're very young, believe that they can wish things to happen, and they will, or that their emotions make them truly bad. And some of our emotions we can't help. We become sexually aroused. It's built in. I've always felt sorry for people who consider themselves evil and bad because they had sexual fantasies that they were told they shouldn't have. Gave some examples of that in my last episode. We don't have an actual self. Historically, the idea of the self grew out of the idea of a soul. And many people listening to this may believe that what they do is not due to their mind or is psychological, but really their bodies are run by the soul. The soul is what God gave them that is intelligence, quality, and allows them to live their life and the lives of those around them in a helpful way. What I say, they can survive and thrive as individuals and part of groups. Science secularized the soul. Most secular people talk about, and even many religious people, a self. They may believe they have a soul. They may even believe that their life, when it ends, the soul will leave. And if they have been a good and moral person in the eyes of God, will go to heaven. If not, they'll go to hell. And there they'll burn forever rather than go to heaven where they have the best golf courses, the best food, and everything is wonderful forever and ever and ever. 
And I envy people sometimes who really have that belief, that genuine faith that lets them that live in a certain way that those of us and myself who are very secularized can't live, won't live. Doesn't make sense to live. Okay? The self became the secularized version. The famous philosopher Rene Descartes you may have learned from psychology or another course, a philosophy course, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. The very fact that I think, he said, proves that I exist. We now know that the self isn't real. It's not substance. Physically, we are substance. The world we live in is substance. But our living is comprised of behaviors, of actions. However, we experience ourselves as having a self. It's necessary. When you and I look into each other's eyes, there's a person there. It's not just a robot and a random behavior. How we actually behave, we don't understand. But what we have created is the idea and the feeling that there is a person in me and a person in you, and that's why we can hold ourselves, each other responsible and ourselves responsible, and that's what we assume generates our actions, what we do. But what we are psychologically is based on what we do and our memory of what we do and how others relate to us because of how what we do to them and with them. It feels real. And what is so destructive is when a person is told that their self is ruined, their self is, is damaged, it's beyond repair. And that's the reason I despise and want to get everybody I can to accept. They will not ever allow themselves to be diagnosed as having a mental illness again. There is no mental illness. It's a judgment, dangerously posing as if it's something medical. And then you can start saying things like, I am a neurotic, I am a psychotic, I am a schizophrenic, I am a manic depressive. You are now, your soul is now owned by the corporation. And if you add to that, the only way you can ever have a real life, you're going to survive and thrive as a human being, is by taking drugs for which there is no evidence that they are a real treatment and do anything except upset normal brain chemistry and create a sense that you're functioning better and feel better than if you don't take the drugs. They're not medicines. And this can ruin your life. It can steal your life. We are what we do. And what we do on Thursday, we can do differently on Friday. What we do as children, we can do differently as adults. 
sometimes better, sometimes worse, depending upon who and how we make a judgment. But when we judge ourselves, our essence, the source of our behavior as defective, your life has been stolen. You've allowed it to be stolen. For 50 years, I told people they had, they had symptoms of mental illness of a variety of types. What I know I did, though, and I did it because you can't earn a living as long as the medical uh, 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 health insurance, third-party payer, pays and requires it. I didn't treat them. I know I didn't treat them as if they were mentally ill, as if they were defective. And that's where I want to end today, or just begin end today. If you are seeing a therapist or going to see a therapist, what you have to feel is that you're respected, <clears throat> that you're seen as an equal, as a human being, not as damaged goods. You can express sympathy to somebody and they can express it to you. And that can nurture a reaction. I understand how you're suffering. I understand how you feel. Let's see if we can increase the understanding so we can change. Pity is destructive. When somebody says, I pity you, it's over. <clears throat> they don't see a possibility of change. Your damaged goods, morally, intellectually, pity. I saw individuals professionally for years at a time. And I discovered that we developed a real relationship. Not only did they respect me, but I felt the respect for them. It didn't undo the fact that I made these terrible diagnoses, which for at least half my career, I didn't realize that I was doing anything that was intellectually dishonest. And once I did, I did it. I tried to get some individuals to understand what we were doing by putting in the diagnostic terms on the, on the health papers, on, on the uh, insurance, third-party insurance papers. And one guy said to me, can't do that. We're colluding then against the drug company, against the health care company. I said, you're right. right. Towards the end of my career, I tried as best I could to set a fair fee where there would be no diagnosis. Because I can tell you, by the way, once the diagnosis is made and internalized and society accepts you as mentally ill, terrible things happen. It follows you all your life. Yes, this is a thought I really wanted to add to this. Let me go back up a little bit. There was a psychiatrist, I think it was R.D. Lang, wonderfully clear-thinking psychiatrist, critical of the medical model of making diagnoses of people uh, as, as, uh, as Thomas Zoss. But it is he who called the process of convincing people they have a mental illness as the degradation ceremony. 
I love that. I hadn't thought of it in years until I did my last episode. And then it came back into my head. I got it back into my head, but I'm not conscious of bringing it up, which shows how much of what we do is not processed in any way that I thought of it. I accept that I thought of it, but I'm not aware of how I thought of it. It's a mystery, and it is a mystery, a lovely mystery. Maybe someday it'll be explained. But I thought of it, and now I use the term. To be diagnosed, go through a degradation ceremony. And to convince yourself and be convinced that you're morally defective while pretending it's not really a moral defect, but a medical defect, which it can't possibly be, is to change your life. And I had another insight about this. I've never had it before. When psychologists, psychiatrists, social worker first meets you, they take a history. Although psychiatrists now don't take much of a history. They ask for symptoms. Somebody figured out that in, a, in an emergency room, somebody comes in with psychiatric symptoms. And by the way, you don't see the psychiatrist till they've ruled out all that they can of head injury, brain tumor, uh, um, hypoglycemia, if your blood sugar is too high, you have diabetes. If it's too low, it's hypoglycemia. And what happens is if your brain is not getting the right nutrition, you can have all kinds of behavioral symptoms that mimic what we then end up diagnosing. If there are no such uh, 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 prob physical problems as mental illnesses. So they, we listen to this process, take a history. And what happens is we say, look how hard this person has worked to make their life. Look at the difficulties they've had. Poverty, brutal parents, racism. Look what they've done, what's happened to them. And then we make the diagnosis. And now we've changed our view of them. Instead of a person doing the best they can, under the most difficult of circumstances, which in my history with people was always the case. Stories that curled my hair, terrible brutality, poverty, loneliness. Right? And what was mental illness was an illness. It was the best they could do under all those difficult circumstances, given their biology, given their, 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 their uh, genetic inheritance. You know, two people can go through the same horror, and one feels challenged, and the other is, ends up being crushed by it. Right? However, once the diagnosis is there, and the self is now seen as defective, anything they do after that Anything that is unhappy, difficult, is going to be attributed to the illness. You're no longer going to be seen as an active, responsible agent of your life, but merely the victim of this illness that isn't an illness. And in my book, I have some really interesting stories. I'll tell you one here that's in my book. A woman 
who had a horrendous childhood, and I'm not going to go through it. And finally, uh, uh, had a brother who was a drug addict, who was addicted to drugs, a mother whose husband left us, so the father was out of the home, the mother who blamed her for all of the problems in her life. So over the years, how many individuals grew up being blamed for their unhappy, oh, our marriage would have been good had you not been born. I mean, things that are said, one of my favorites that was so destructive, you were the abortion that failed. So here she is, and now she's a very bright individual going through high school and then college and having to take care of the brother because the mother became so unhappy, she really stopped taking care. And now she gets a job, and she gets a job, and she rises rapidly to the executive level. And she lives a life, but on the side, she has to take care of the brother. She'll get a phone call from the mother. Your brother is on a bender. And she would have to stop what she's doing and go find the brother. And this was so terribly burdensome to her. And finally, the brother OD'd and died. And she based, felt responsible. She had internalized a lot of this from her mother. And what happened was she had some kind of a breakdown and got diagnosed as having schizophrenia. I see her now 15 or 20 years after that episode, and she's the shell of the human being she used to be. I mean, she's drugged all the time. And she's miserably unhappy because she can't live the life anymore. She's been told. You can't afford to get yourself sick again because you'll end up back in the hospital. <clears throat> and so I'm now seeing for a second year, she laments. I know I can't go back to work. I don't think I could do that. But one of the things I loved was to have dinner parties. I'd throw the best parties, Dr. Simon. So we started to talk and she planned the dinner party. She was going to cook her favorite recipes, have friends come in. She did this. I come in the day, our next appointment was the day after, the night before she was going to do the dinner party. And I look, and I'm excited to see how, I want to know how this worked out. And her name is scratched off my list. She's been taken off my list. So I go to the director, who is my friend and colleague. She's the administrative director. And sitting with her is a psychiatrist that I despised. And he's smug and he's smiling at me. He's smirking. I said, what's going on? Mrs. So-and-so, she had gone in that morning for her medication appointment. And she told the doctor how she was so excited that she um, was making this party that she couldn't sleep the night before. And he said to her, you're having a breakdown. If you don't cancel the party and take double your medication, I'm going to have you hospitalized. I thought I was going to hit him. I thought I was going to put my fist through his fat face. I was enraged. Later, I never saw the patient again. I never saw the woman again. That's what happens. That's what can happen. It happens all the time. I'll do another episode, and I hope I can get some of the people, I could get maybe Jim Gottstein or other people, to talk about the mechanism by which you could be forced into a hospital. 
that there are special courts and judges, and no one will ever believe that you're not mentally ill if the doctor says you're mentally ill. I sat down and I wrote my resignation, and after 25 years of being in that work, in that clinic, I left. That was it. Couldn't do that anymore. Anyway, I think that's it for today. I'm going to do a third episode early next week. I don't know how many people are going to hear this. If anybody hears this and it's meaningful, let your friends know. Tell them to go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash stories we live by. When I go back on the air, I would love to talk to some people who have been through this. You have to protect yourself. It's a broken, dysfunctional system that hurts more than it helps. Even though the intentions of most of the therapists I know are right and honorable, they will respect you, you will like them, and they will like you, and it can be enormously helpful. But not until you can get past the damage done by this this terrible system of claiming that unhappiness is is, a pro, is mental illness or caused by mental illness or confusion is caused and is. Okay, I'm finished. I'm going to put on the news and see how bad things are. The West is on fire. It's very upsetting. And I've got to find out what's happening politically and whether or not there's a chance our democracy will continue past January because that will be another disaster. And I'll talk about that in future episodes as well. Goodbye. Take care.